Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, everyone. You have arrived at Characters on the Couch. I'm Jordana Horn, and I am here with my dear friend, Dr. Adam Stern. Hi there. And we're going to be chatting all about analysis of fictional people. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Characters on the Couch. I'm Jordana Horn, and I'm here with Dr. Adam Stern. Hello, everybody. Hello, Adam. Today, we're talking about, I, I feel like in recent weeks, I've I've kept introducing things by saying, one of my favorite shows. And so I guess, yes, I have a, a very rich and deep bench of uh, favorite shows. Fleabag. Ugh. But Fleabag. I want to do, I want to do like the chef's kiss mm-hmm. after saying Fleabag, because I think that Fleabag in so many ways is a beautiful and perfect jewel box of a show, not least of which um, my reasons for that being that the psychological analysis is deep. So, Adam, talk to me. Give me a diagnosis on the oddly named uh, <laughs> protagonist, Fleabag, and let's differentiate between season one and season two because yeah. um, we were discussing this earlier and we've noted that there are very real differences between the Fleabag of season one and the Fleabag of season two. Yeah, so so at a very clinical level, let's imagine Fleabag of season one uh, is, is the patient in the waiting room and you're getting the two-liner about this patient. It's, you know, a, a youthful, what would you say she is? in this uh, Early 30s. Yeah, exactly, right. right. She's like just sort of coming into her own as an adult, a youthful woman in financial distress whose bakery is floundering. She's unable to to, uh, get funding for this business venture, but that's obviously superficial. What's more deep is that uh, she's experienced loss and is struggling to grieve in a way that is adaptive in any manner, shape, or form. And so that's like, that would be the, you know, if one psychiatrist was handing it over to another, they they would talk about the grief aspect. As a viewer, this comes into play a little bit slower, right? Because what we see at first is not that at all. What we see at first is just a woman who seems to be making uh, incredibly uh, antagonistic choices. I, I, that's the best word I can come up with. Her, her life choices, her social interactions every time seem to be the one that's going to raise the volume, right? Or make things more intense. How, how do you see Fleabag from your perspective? Uh, okay. I love her. I love her fiercely in both season one and season two. 
I love the device of breaking the fourth wall and talking to the audience and the audience being her friends. I think that speaks to a lot about, number one, how even since the show came out, how our lives have deteriorated into this social media presentation Mm -hmm. for others, how we all see each other. I'm sorry, we all see ourselves as Mm -hmm. the protagonists in this, in this, you know, highly acclaimed like television drama. And so I find that fascinating. I think it's, uh, I think that what makes her, I throw around the word pathological and I really have no literal license to do so, but her, her incessant, poor choices and her her attempt to to find the connection that eludes her in reality in sex in constant sex usually bad sex mm-hmm. it's usually not very good um which she acknowledges all of that is wrapped up in this very british self-deprecating mm-hmm. and self-aware to a certain extent humor which I love. So all of that makes me feel affection for her at the same time, even while I'm seeing her behavior and the way that it plays out and the way that it affects other people. Because I think there are two layers here, right? There's the layer of behavior as it affects her. She's double-decker grieving, Mm -hmm. right? She's grieving for her best friend, Boo, Mm -hmm. and she's grieving for her mother. Mm -hmm. So the two, two very strong forces in her life Mm -hmm. have been taken away. And how is that grieving manifesting? Everything from having this constant test of her ability to seduce people Mm -hmm. to masturbating to Barack Obama. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, and, you know, if we're going to dive in, let's dive in a little bit to sort of the the formulation of this kind of patient. Uh, mm-hmm. Were they entering a kind of therapy? We'd be thinking not only about, you know, loss as we all experience it, but the additional layers that she experiences loss and guilt around that loss because... I had forgotten about this until I reviewed the show before we chose to discuss it today. She actually was, she slept with her best friend's significant other. What do you think it says about you, Dr. Stern, that you forgot that very salient fact? It's a very important, very important detail. Mm -hmm. And what it reflects mostly is that I'm not sleeping as much as I should be, Mm, that I watched this in 2016. Or perhaps, perhaps it also reflects that... We want to extend her the benefit of the doubt, right? We want to believe that she wouldn't do something like that to someone that she cared about that much. But that's if you're reading into that's, everything. That's a very yeah. professional interpretation, Jordana. Mm. I think we're, yes. re- we're ready. I've learned a lot from this podcast, and I think I'm almost ready to get my degree. I, I suggest, so close. Yeah, I, I think maybe we should switch it up, and, and uh, <laughs> I'll do, the, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll ask you the questions. And yeah, no, I think that this is, uh, you got it. You got it. So she, I think that, I think that you're right, actually, that the audience really admires her, wants to, does like her. She's so charming when she talks at the camera, the breaking the fourth wall thing Mm. shouldn't work, but it does. It works remarkably well. So that added layer of grief, the guilt, excuse me, around the grief just adds this complexity to her. Right now, as a therapist, you would wonder with the patient, ideally, why 
is the response to that guilty grief to act out in the way that she's acting out. And what are you, I'll just ask as a, as a uh, psychologist in training, informal yes. training as you are, yes. what do you make of it? Well, I think part of it is this dynamic that she has with her sister. So her sister is Claire, who is as uptight as a human being can be. So they're very much yin and yang, the two of them. And Claire's response to her grief is to, she was already a turtle, you know, retracted into its shell, and now she's sort of retracting even more. So I think that it's, you know, I... I I have I have three siblings myself, and obviously, I, as a parent of six children, I see the sibling dynamic frequently and how we define ourselves frequently. We define ourselves as a counterpoint to what we see in our siblings, mm. and whether that is for some ever-elusive parental approval or differentiation, it's hard, it's, you know, Results may vary, Mm -hmm. but I would say that this dance that Fleabag and Claire have been locked into where, you know, she's one extreme and her sister's the other, I Mm -hmm. think that influences her actions a lot. Yeah, and so part of what you're getting at, I think, about Claire is that she, it seems like, does everything just so, just properly, just she's very well Kempt is that is that an expression? She's just like so professional and looking, you know, does everything by the book and sort of like looks that way. And Fleabag's character, you know, they they're from the same uh, family, but they I, they just couldn't be more different, you know, in how they act and whatever uh, facade Claire is putting up to to maintain this, you know, this falsehood that everything's okay. Fleabag just completely breaks it down. Her instinct, whether it's a rebellion against that perfection, that false perfection or, or what, uh, whatever else it may be, is to break it down, you know, to blow it up. And she does it sometimes to great comedic effect and sometimes just to, tra- you know, just the most sad, heavy kind of effect. And so... Let's talk just very briefly before we get her, you know, into therapy. Let's talk about how things sort of morph in season two. Mm. Do you want to give a little background to how things change? Sure. So season two opens up with probably the best and worst family dinner that you've (laughs) you've ever seen. So by way of plot synopses, which uh, we don't really go into that much, but their father, their bereft father, who's has his own issues of emotional distance and coping is being has decided to marry the evil godmother who what a character she is man that yeah. one is she's off the rails too so claire and fleabag when we get to that initial kickoff of the season have not spoken to each other for a year because claire has been led by her husband her extraordinarily skeevy and gross mm-hmm. husband to believe that Fleabag made a pass at him when, in Mm -hmm. fact, it was the opposite um, Mm -hmm. way round. Where do I? And then they bring in the hot priest, Mm -hmm. which is the person who is allegedly going to marry the father and the evil godmother, and he is hot. He's hot. And And what is 
well, I won't ask this question. I'll just answer what I'm thinking, which is the priest represents the ultimate thing that you want that you can't have, right? The thing mm. that is off limits. And it's, it goes in both directions, but we're obviously focusing on it from Fleabag's perspective of like, she's the fact that he is off limits, I think, draws her gaze even more than just, you know, his, his blanket, you know, attraction, whatever it might be. Like, like she, she, the fact that he is by definition not allowed to, uh, to sleep with her, which is, which is how she interacts with, with so many men in the show. It's like, she's, she has a very hard time, I think, uh, letting that just exist on its own without intervening. So if I were, if I were going to, Sorry, I don't want to step on what you're. No, go ahead. Go ahead. If I were going to give a two-liner about Fleabag in season two, it would be a woman who is coming to terms with the grief she's experienced in in uh, season one, or in the two-liner, I would say coming to grief she experienced recently, and she's now struggling against the restrictions of relationships beyond what society, you know, allows for. She's struggling against her instincts to make what are usually maladaptive choices. And I would leave it there. So there, I don't know if you recall, but there actually is a therapy session in season two. Her father gives her a voucher for (laughs) a therapy session and she goes to this therapist and it's, it's just such a a fascinating scene where she unloads a lot. And then the therapist is like, so you're alone and you're looking for, you know, salvation and connection in things that you can't have. And Fleabag's like, I just came here because I wanted the cash from the voucher for this visit instead of, but that's not really true. So I wanted to ask also your take on that because how would you counsel someone who seems hell-bent you know, you can say on destructive behavior and so and for Fleabag, but for Claire, I would say hell-bent on equally destructive non-behavior. Mm-hmm. You know, in other words, Claire has decided to be passive in right. her own life. She right. loves this guy in Finland. Right. He's interested in her. She's not going to pursue that, even though, like, what she has at home is very crappy. Mm-hmm. So how do you respond? Like, I think we tend as a society to pathologize the former rather mm-hmm. than the latter. Mm-hmm. And so how would you give counsel That's a to, great question. to both of them? When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. 
Mm-hmm. Right. Imagine both of them are on the couch, you know, and t- and mm-hmm. asking for help because they're not living the life they want. So entering the treatment section here, uh, what I would say is for both of them, the te- there's a technique. It sounds it's too simple to be true, but it but it actually is really powerful and effective. That's called opposite action. This is exactly what it sounds like. So if you get a patient to identify that the choices they're making in life are, are not adaptive for them, they're not leading to the life that they want to be living. And you don't say, well, just do the George Costanza thing and do the opposite of what you would normally do. But you ask them to consider, okay, my instinct is to do this. What would be the opposite of that? And then you can evaluate the entire space between what your instinct is, what the opposite is, and find the middle ground that's probably a much more adaptive, reasonable thing. Or you can choose, hey, this is really important to me. I'm going to do it. You know, I'm going to blow up the dinner party because, you know, that's what I want to do because it's a good idea, you know? And so opposite action, it sounds like it's going to be a demeaning thing, like, oh, I should just go against my instincts. But in fact, it's an an empowering thing because it allows patients and people, and as we have always said, patients are people, people are patients. uh, It allows you to choose among the entire menu of actions, right? And and when you're choosing, you know, we can't control our thoughts. We can't control our feelings very well. The only thing that we have much more control over is our actions and our behaviors, right? And so being able to slow it down, lay it all out, and then make those choices would lead Fleabag to be less impulsive and less probably provocatively antagonistic and would almost certainly lead Claire to be a little more adventurous isn't the right word, but it's a little more like living toward what she actually wants out of her life, which would benefit her dramatically. But I think that what's interesting is that each one of them has this living example of this opposites uh, mentality in the other. And each one sees the other as not inspirational at all, rather as a total cautionary tale, like, oh my God, I don't want to be Claire. I don't want to be Fleabag. Yeah, yeah, that's a really great point. I would counter that I'm sure they do love each other and I think that and care about each other. And I'm sure that at a level, at some level, they admire those, they wish, you know, whenever, as you were alluding to like the dynamic between siblings, whenever siblings, I think, rebel against another image of another sibling, there's a degree, whether it's conscious or not, of envy. You know, I wish I could be like that, you know, and I think that if you could if they were secure enough to admit that, you know, there are parts that you, you know, that you don't want to identify with at all, but uh, there are parts that Fleabag surely admires about Claire. And if you could bring that out in the therapy and, and get some aspect of what are the things that you look at her and admire, and even an acknowledgement of the benefits of living a more straight-laced life and do the same for Claire. What are the things about Fleabag that you would admire? You could almost certainly get them at least, not all the way to the center, but you could get them to, to start to, at start starting with acknowledgement and then moving over time toward action, you know, toward a more, you know, if, if we think about behaviors as being 
sort of in uh, across a spectrum as we've sort of been outlining with these two not we don't we're not aiming for the middle we don't want everyone to be alike but we want people to be generally within two standard deviations of the mean of a behavior right so mm-hmm. like what what 99% of people will will do in a situation is generally uh, going to be what you know, will be appropriate to maintain a modern society, you know? So Fleabag might, might be just beyond that right now. And and we might just want to help her get a little bit closer to center. Could you do anything in therapy for the godmother? That's so interesting. It depends on how content versus not content she is she seems pretty happy with herself that's the thing is that kind of therapy you know if it, sometimes you ask me which of these characters would you like to try a therapy with and i don't think i would like to try a therapy <laughs> with her primarily because she's seems like she's she's found you know her artwork which might put some people off she loves it and you know like the way she interacts with people is sending them you know running running but that doesn't seem to bother her much, you know, at, for most of the show. And so, you know, I don't know. I don't think that there's much work to be done with her, even though un- unless and until it really starts impacting relationships. You know, she seems to get along with the, their father, I think, for reasons that I can't understand. So, you know, it, it, it will depend upon at what point it starts to come back to haunt her. You know, at, at what point it starts to diminish her quality of life. That's the point at which she could really properly enter a therapy and make some, some good headway. And what about the dad? The dad seems like a broken man to me in a lot of ways from the very beginning of how they introduce him. And I think it's, for better or worse, I think... His character to me rings rings out as two-dimensional in the sense that that he is very clearly to me, I think, representing a, a grieving person. He's lost he's lost his his partner in life and he is just a shell. Like he, he seems like a shell. And I don't want to minimize grief because that's complex grief is 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 complicated and it does leave people feeling all kinds of different ways and acting in all kinds of different ways. But throughout both seasons, you just look at this guy and you think, what are you doing? You know? And when you go from him just sort of like being with the godmother to getting married to the godmother, you're, you're, you're just thinking, why, why are you doing this? You know, it just doesn't, as the audience member, you're, you're, you just can't fathom it. But he has so little insight, I think, to what's going on for most of the show that he's another one that would be hard to work with until he starts seeing the deficits that emerge from his actions. So, again, he like like the godmother, I wouldn't rush into a therapy with him, but at some point he may end up on the couch. So in the therapy session with that Fleabag has with the therapist, her her voucher therapy session. The therapist said, you know, she's like, well, should I sleep with the priest or not? And the therapist is like, well, you've already decided. Mm. And Fleabag says, I haven't. And she says, oh, no, you have. Yeah. You you have. And I wanted to ask you about that. Like, number one, what is that? Number two, I, I do understand and appreciate that part of therapy is helping people come to terms with the choices yeah. that they do make. Yep. But that seemed a little strange to me and I wanted yeah. to 
So there's, so uh, I'll start with the background that like in TV therapy, they almost always, they, they go one of two directions. They either make the therapist seem omniscient, like this therapist who knows the outcome that before it's happened, mm. or they make the therapist a real dummy. You know, uh, <laughs> they don't know anything. They're so stupid kind of thing. And so almost always in real life, we're, again, not at either of those poles. We're somewhere in the middle. And, you know, I would never tell a patient that their outcome is determined. But what the analogy that, that I do like, and I've uh, read and, and have used in practice sometimes is that the way that I see a therapy, a good therapeutic alliance is that, you know, we're, we're both, or I should say the patient is climbing the mountain. They may or may not see certain pitfalls that are ahead of them, certain, you know, loose rocks, there are certain traps that might lead them to, to get hurt. And from my perspective down here on the ground, I can actually see because I'm further away, I can see more and I might be able to give them a heads up about things or help them change their perspective. And if you look at it like that, the therapist may very well say in her, in her mind that the patient is already may, has already made that decision to sleep with that person, the priest. But you wouldn't exactly, a good therapist probably wouldn't say it bluntly like that and take away the patient's agency. I mean, that's such an important part of therapy is having patients take ownership of their own behaviors and actions because you're only with them those 50 minutes per week or whatever it might be, right? Mm. So you're not out there in the world with them. What you want to do is in a successful therapy, have the patient actually feel like they can themselves make the changes that they want, right? And so what you would do is not, not tell them what to do or tell them what they're already going to do, but get them a little bit to imagine the different paths, you know, and what they might be like, and then empower them to make the choice that they are most aligned with, you know. And so, you know, with one session, Fleabag is still going to make the choice she's going to make, right? And that's okay because therapy doesn't work in one session, but... Which yeah. is a real shame. Yeah. Put that out there. That yeah. is a real shame. For Agreed. That's on the, on the patient side. Agreed. Agreed. This is uh, off off topic, but I got to say it is, is uh, one area of research that's really exciting right now in like clinical trials, but not yet ready for prime time is this idea of psychedelic associated therapy or excuse mm -hmm. me, therapy associated psychedelic treatment. Mm -hmm. And the idea is essentially to really speed, you know, people who take psilocybin, magic mushrooms, uh, mm -hmm. psychedelic drugs. I'm not supporting this for anybody out there listening outside of the setting of a clinical trial, but, you know, we'll report these really dramatic instantaneous kind of perception changes and how they see their lives and their connection to the universe and the world. And, uh, in a therapeutic environment. So there are a lot of studies out of Yale and Johns Hopkins, MGH up here in Massachusetts is starting a program where, where it's like looking at combining this chemical, this very powerful chemical interaction that changes your perception of, of things with therapy in the same day, essentially. You reminded me of it by saying, wouldn't it be great if it worked in one day? And like the jury is still out on whether or not this will make its way into the clinic, so to speak. But I'm hoping and following along and hoping that, that the, the clinical trials that are happening right now really do lead to improvements. Maybe you've just uh, dictated the third season for Fleabag. Because <laughs> I would totally watch that. I would totally watch Claire and Fleabag on Magic Mushrooms. Together. Yes, having yes. epiphanies about their past, 
their childhood, their present, the direction of their future. Yeah. All right. Sign me up. Yep. Writers. Somebody um, call the BBC. Let's do this. Phoebe Waller, Bridge, please just send us the royalties when season three comes out. Or free samples. Free samples. Um, No, no. We don't don't condone that, Adam. (laughs) Oh, you were referring to, no, yeah, no, we don't refer. I thought you meant like DVDs or something. Oh, Okay. okay. We, yeah, that's sure. yeah, no, sure. that's not what I meant. No, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's not all right. what I meant well, at all. That's but a, okay. That's a great sure. note for us to end on. I think. <laughs> <laughs> Once we go totally off the rails, and I put um, Adam's professional license in any kind of jeopardy, that's right. really where we end. So thank you for joining us. Right, <laughs> and that. and I uh, I do like that. As soon as we finish that, uh, please be advised. You know, advisory comes on. So at, at the end is when I find we always get loosest, which is one of my. You know, in terms of how how we talk about these things. Anyway, everybody, I hope you enjoyed this discussion of Fleabag. It's been a pleasure as always, Jordana. Same. Talk soon. Please be advised that Characters on the Couch is a show focused only on fictional people, and none of the content should be considered medical or professional advice in any way. If you or someone you know is struggling with your mental health, please seek out professional consultation. Thank you. Thanks so much. Hope to see you guys next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.